Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and onstage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists, and thinkers of our day, recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. In The Ministry for the Future, science fiction novelist Kim Stanley Robinson imagines a near future where climate change has wreaked havoc, from severe heat waves to limited resources and a global refugee crisis. It's a terrifying set of circumstances, but not without hope, and Robinson brings to life a possible path for survival. Robinson has also just published a memoir, The High Sierra, A Love Story. Before we get to our conversation with him, Here's an excerpt from the audio recording of that book, in which Robinson describes a hike in the Sierra. The sky was lighter now. Sunrise would catch us in a forest on the eastern slope. We had done it again, another Sierra trip. Well over 50 of them at this point, Terry and I. Almost half of those, just the two of us. Rambling the Sierra with my moody friend, and various times he would be gloomy, exuberant, calm, remote. It didn't matter. Both of us were there for the Sierra. In that sense, we were a good match. For sure, we were used to each other. Now we flowed up the trail, hiking fast through shadows. A long, gentle uphill walk through narrow meadows, threading an open forest. Everything was cool and still, the shadows horizontal, the light yellow. I felt the energy of the trip's first hour, and yet things were still a little dreamy, too. Sometimes hiking involves a lot of looking down to make sure of your footing, but other times it's like strolling up a sidewalk. Minute follows minute, they unspool with nothing in particular to mark their passing. You're just walking, and you're only going to be walking for the rest of that day. And so you begin to shift into hiking's different time, its altered state of consciousness, Sierra time. In that morning light, at the start of a trip, I sometimes laugh out loud. That feeling is one of the things I want to write about here. Crazy love. Some kind of joy. There are people who go up to California's Sierra Nevada, fall in love with the place, and then live the rest of their lives in ways that will get them back up there as often as possible. I'm one of those, and in this book I want to explore various aspects of that feeling, thinking about how it happens and why. Analyzing love. Is this wise? Possibly not, but I notice we do it all the time. So I'll give it a try. On that particular day in 2008, we came over a rise to a sudden huge view. Cottonwood Lake One stretched before us, a narrow blue expanse banked by reeds. Over the pine trees on the far shore loomed the Sierra Crest, here a stretch of broken gray cliff blocking our way, 2,000 feet high and topped at its north end by the summit prow of Mount Langley the southernmost of the Sierra's 14,000-foot peaks. We followed the trail along the grassy south shore of Cottonwood 1 and stopped at the far end of Cottonwood 2 for second breakfast. It was very satisfying to look up at the giant rocky wall facing us and see that the rest of our day was going to be above treeline, and here it was only 9.30. When I remarked on this, Terry told me that the Pacific Crest Trail's through hikers always start early. 10 by 10, they call it meaning 10 miles by 10 a.m. To me, that sounded awful, but in the actual performance, it had been quite nice. Two fishermen wandered by and stopped to chat. I asked them if they had visited Cottonwood Lake 4, which would have given them a view up to Old Army Pass. The evening before, we had asked a horse packer about that long-abandoned route, and he had growled, you'd need crampons to get over that one. The two fishermen replied that they had indeed seen such hikers. There was no snow on the pass and the hikers headed up that way had not returned. Horse packers, I said. They don't like backpackers, Terry noted. I suggested we try this old army pass, and with a little frown, Terry agreed. He had a long day ahead of him, and new army would have been the sure thing. But we wandered toward old army, and found that Cottonwood 4 filled the floor of a glacial embayment in the crest wall. Above the far end of the lake reared the pass, not a deep U or V, just a little cleft at the top of the Great Wall. The trail over this break hasn't been maintained or marked on maps since New Army Pass was built in the 1930s, 
but some guidebooks describe it as the best route to Mount Langley, a popular peak, being one of California's 14,000-footers. For me, the interesting thing was this long abandoned trail, which turned out, as we started up it, to be just as distinct as any other trail in the Sierra. It ran to the west end of Cottonwood 4, right under the steep headwall, then circled the lake and traversed up the slope on the lake's south side, going away from the headwall. Finally, it made a hairpin turn and headed back toward the pass. Here, the problem with the old trail came into view. The final rise to the pass ran on top of a long ledge, like a broken rising sidewalk. Great when dry, but because it was on a north-facing slope, snow would cover this ledge long into every summer, and cliffs above and below it meant that when the ledge was under snow, the pass would be blocked. Probably the trail was passable only in August and September, with a few weeks to either side of those months, depending on snowfall. Thus, the blasting of New Army Pass in the 30s around a big turn in the crest that gave it a south-facing slope. Now there was no snow at all. I was really pleased to be hiking this old trail, which had been built in the 1890s by a squadron of black U.S. cavalry soldiers under the command of Charles A. Young, the only black commissioned officer in the Army at that time. He had been the third African-American to graduate from West Point, and later became the U.S. military attaché to Hispaniola and Liberia, among other achievements. When he died, the funeral parade in New York drew 50,000 people. The interment in Arlington National Cemetery, 60,000. A forgotten hero. His squadron's defense of Sequoia National Park from illegal sheepherders and loggers had set a standard that the Army units up in Yosemite seldom matched. Another of his assignments had been to improve access to the new park. Thus this trail, which had created a new way into Sequoia from the east. The north-facing wall ledge was admittedly an unfortunate route placement, but probably they had had no better alternative. New Army Pass had taken a lot of dynamite. These days, climate change may keep Old Army Pass open more than ever before. And obviously, the 14er peak baggers are keeping it well-trodden. But it will never take much snow to shut it down. Up in the pass, we found ourselves in the low point of a broad ramp in the sky, rising in an undulating wave to Langley, which looked much like Mount Whitney from the same angle. The ramp was covered with sandy, decomposed granite, and here and there some ground-hugging tundra plants. A sky island, this ramp, always sticking out of the ice caps during the ice ages. Now it formed a high road to the peak, which looked nearby, though the map told us it was a few miles away. It was still early, and we decided to go for the peak. We hustled up an intermittent faint trail, passing a big group that was losing steam. Terry put on the jets as he passed them, shaking his head in silent disapproval of a group that big and slow. Not that we were the fastest people up there. A clutch of runners ran down past us, quadriceps bouncing foursquare over their knees. We flowed up in our usual silence. Langley's summit is a block, about 200 feet higher than the ramp, its tilted flat top covering several acres. We found shallow cracks in the side of this block, even used our hands a bit. Up on the summit plateau, it was back to easy walking. The eastern end of the block was the high point, overlooking immense drops to east and north. I had to lie on my stomach to look down these sheer cliffs. A nearby circle of granite plates made rough benches, and in the middle of these lay the peak's aluminum summit register box, holding a notebook and a few pens. We signed it, then stood looking around. Peaks and ridges, ridges and peaks, scores of miles in every direction. This year there was no snow to be seen, and the bare granite of the range looked lifeless and forbidding. Ten thousand feet below us, the weird expanse of the semi-rehydrated Owens Lake was cut by dikes into quadrants of poisonous green or yellow, surrounded by an even bigger area of arsenic white, the exposed playa left behind after L.A.'s water grab. It was like the view out an airplane window, but without the airplane. We were standing in the sky. You've been listening to an excerpt from the audiobook edition of High Sierra by Kim Stanley Robinson, Read by the author, courtesy Hachette Audio. On June 7, 2022, Kim Stanley Robinson talked with his friend, author and environmental activist Bill McKibben. 
Join us now for a conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson and Bill McKibben. Stan, what a pleasure to be with you and in the midst of this skein of books that you're producing that people are reading with great pleasure. I want to start by asking you a question that will seem slightly off-center, and it involves a technology that appears in several of your recent books, and I want you to talk about it and uh, how it's going to work and what it's going to mean for how we see the world. And that technology is the passenger blimp. Aha. Geez, you definitely led me uh, down the, the, uh, <laughs> the path towards other technologies. Um, well, um, humans like to travel, and world travel is a, a gift to humanity, and we've been doing it since we've been humans, walking around the planet and flying over it is um, beautiful and instructive as to what this planet is. So I like it. But it has to also to be said that we should not be burning carbon. So there are uh, carbon-neutral ways of uh, flying airplanes, perhaps, but there's also the blimp, which is slower, like a cruise ship, um, not very many passengers, but also with some solar panels on the top of them, it very easily could be the case that they could even be carbon-negative, that they would be drawing down more electricity, that enough to run the the little propellers on the side of the blimp and you cruise over the Earth's surface at about the speed of a fast car. And in the meantime, get to know your fellow passengers and get to see the planet from an angle that I think brings it vividly alive to you. So it would be value added all around. Well, that's the part I love it, as you write about it uh, first at, at some length in, uh, in New York 2140 and then in Ministry for the Future. It sounds so elegant. Uh, uh, there you are cruising above the Serengeti or over the poles or atop the Sierra or someplace and just looking down at the world. And we live in a world where perhaps speed isn't quite what it once was anyway, since everybody just spends all day like we're doing right now, staring into our screens and talking over a computer. And you can do that on a blimp if you wanted to anyway, right? Yes. And um, like I just flew from uh, Copenhagen to San Francisco, so therefore went over Greenland. And uh, it was during the daytime. And in the breaks in the clouds, we saw Greenland like I've never seen it before. It looks just like Antarctica, where I was uh, years ago. And it's so beautiful. And I thought, you know, if we were going slower, if we were a little bit lower, it would be a sublime experience. And yes, I think it, given all of the advantages of it and the fact that it could be carbon neutral or carbon negative, it seems to me something that should happen. And I noticed these little airship companies that are proposing that they're short uh, hops, like you see in Europe or from one airport to another, might be done by blimp at about the same amount of time spent as in a plane. So um, I hope they come. Me too. That's one thing I'd like to live long enough to really get to do. All right, we've had our pleasure. Let's go straight to the grim facts of the moment. You open Ministry for the Future, which has emerged as one of, if not the classic novel of the climate era. You open it with an account of a truly devastating heat wave across the Asian subcontinent. And that's the sort of trigger event for full-on fight against climate change that the world then haltingly starts to undertake. What's it been like this spring to watch the reports from India and Pakistan uh, of temperatures uh, way in excess of previous records day after day, week after week, uh, with the wet bulb temperatures creeping up towards where you had them in your novel? Yeah, it's been terrifying. and. It makes me sad. By a coincidence, I was in India in April, um, but I was up uh, in a conference organized by the Dalai Lama's people. So I was up at about 5,000 feet in McLeod Gange, and it was uh, moderate temperatures there, but we were reading about what was right down below us, and indeed the air so hazy at all times. Um, fires sparking the landscape below. It was pretty apocalyptic looking, but we were comfortable. But then I flew to New Delhi 
And I just walked across the airport from a tiny little prop plane. I was probably exposed to the air for maybe 15 minutes. And it was hot. I would, putting it in American terms, I would guess that it was about 110 to 115 degrees. And because I'm from Davis, California, I know that temperature well from our summers here on the hottest weeks. And it was dry heat. So uh, I read it was wet bulb 31 at the worst points in this recent heat spell. And that's bad, but it isn't fatal like wet bulb 35 is. And as you know, the Celsius scale for four degrees. And, and also this is an index where humidity needs to be taken into account in, in terms of its fatality. So in other words, I wasn't in the event for my book. If I had been, everybody would have been in much worse trouble. But we were pretty close. And the thing is, many, many people there didn't have air conditioning and they were in living in these temperatures for like uh, two months. And it was off the scale to anything that I'd ever experienced there before in those in that time of the year. It broke all records. It's going to happen more and more and more. So we're in climate change. The crash is going to be stupendous, the suffering and the death. And so um, the urgency is just ratcheting up, I think. And I, I will say this, I get a sense that the urgency is indeed there, that the world, uh, this is the big problem on the docket now. Even with the war on Ukraine, Russia's brutal war on Ukraine is, has got a climate change element to it. The, the petrostates are in terrible trouble and Russia is a petrostate. And so they're um, uh, lashing out and all the petrostates will be in much less serious ways, hopefully, lashing out. But a disaster is, is beginning, and, and we need to cope. Well, let's talk about Ukraine for a little while. Vladimir Putin, as you point out, gets 60% of his export earnings from oil and gas, uh, which is pretty easy to prove because go through your house and try to find anything of Russian manufacture you might want to boycott or throw on a bonfire or something. And unless there's an old bottle of Stolichnaya in the liquor cabinet, you're not going to find much. It's also the tool that he's used to intimidate the rest of Europe into overlooking his bullying for a couple of decades when he threatens to turn off the tap. But something does seem decisively to have changed here. And at least around Europe, uh, governments are now trying to move up the timetable for their conversion off of hydrocarbons. Yes, the response from Europe, the European Union, has been superb. And um, I mean, Thomas Friedman pointed this out in an editorial, I think, just in the last couple of days in The New York Times, that ironically, as an unexpected positive out of this dreadful and stupid invasion, um, it might speed up the shift to clean energy. And Europe is taking the lead as it is in so many ways on this front. Um, the stocks of fossil fuel companies in Europe uh, have dropped since the war began. In America, they've risen. And it's just seen as an opportunity to do more fossil fuels because of the so-called pressure of necessity, rather than making the transition as we ought to. So that's too bad and needs to be pointed out and addressed. But um, all the to go back to the petrostates, Russia has made a, a brutal response to their dilemma. But what if you were, say... Brazil or Venezuela or Nigeria or South Africa or Australia or Colombia are the many other uh, states where the fossil fuels of most countries are owned by those countries. They are national assets and they're national companies that, um, that uh, reap the bulk of the benefits. And like you said, 60% of government income for a petro state, that's not at all unusual. And they pay their police, their teachers, their airport controllers, they're uh, all of their government workers that are essential for keeping society going are paid out of government reserves that when they don't sell petro um, when they don't sell fossil fuels anymore, then they're in terrible trouble. And this is one of those uh, big problems that is uh, uh, financial, economic, political and environmental all at once, as they all are now, that we aren't really talking about very much. I'll, let me give you an example that is concerning me. Um, Colombia, uh, Petro and Marquez running for president from the left on a on a po uh, program, a platform of land reform, women's rights, and no more selling of our fossil fuels. And they're the fifth biggest coal manufacturer in, as nations go. 
Well, that would be great. And they, they mentioned that it would be nice to have international help to uh, wean themselves off of the sale of their coal, and they have a lot of oil too. Uh, no response from the world community except for this, that the New York Times and the Financial Times expressed their fervent hope or their expectation that this populist right-winger that beat the uh, establishment right-winger would take the establishment right-wingers' votes into hand and would handily beat Petro, who had 40%, whereas this populist had 28%. No expression of the importance of Petro and Marquez winning in Colombia as a sign to the world that we're coming to grips with all these problems. No solidarity with an obviously um, justice-oriented uh, program. It's just all business as usual. Oh, hopefully we'll have the stability of a, of a Trump-like lunatic there instead of a leftist program. So this is uh, sickening. This is, this is uh, the, the mainstream media, not to put it so flatly, but these individuals in uh, journalism who are... Um, public intellectuals who have studied the situation, they haven't yet taken on board the reality of the carbon crisis. They just haven't, or else they'd be doing everything they could to encourage um, uh, the victory of people like Petro. We need these people. We need Lula to win in Brazil and to have an orderly transition. All these are parts of the climate battle as well as the justice battle. Some of the parts of the Ukraine saga are playing out in almost as scenes from a novel. I've been back and forth uh, a bunch over the last few months with my old colleague and friend Svetlana Romanko, who uh, was working for the Laudato Si movement in the Catholic community and has taken time off to be organizing the kind of fossil fuel response around the invasion from Ukraine, even as the bombs fall around her house. And she keeps saying, this is the moment to realize that fossil fuel is a weapon of mass destruction. We really, really have to seize this moment. And I think that she's probably right that we're not likely to get another moment like this in the relevant time frame that sort of as starkly illustrates the dangers and the possibilities of a world past fossil fuel. Yes, well, I think that's right. And I think this is where the European Union, with all of its awkwardnesses, um, as, a, as a union of member states where all of these nation states, very proud, very distinctive and individual, have banded together and agreed to set aside a little bit of their sovereignty um, and collaborate in a larger project. That's what the world has to do. So we look to the European Union as a kind of a model of political um, uh, cooperation, uh, so that you go from being a nation state, you know, completely sovereign, etc., to a member state where you've um, traded some of your uh, sovereignty over your own national decisions to a larger group for the good of all concerned, including yourself. So I, I'm uh, vastly encouraged by many things going on in the European Union, uh, despite all the awkwardnesses and backbiting and, you know, complaints, because it's really hard to do what they're doing. It strikes me that the Ukraine situation hasn't even begun to play itself out yet. Among other things, Ukraine is one of the biggest grain exporters on the planet, uh, a harvest that's now bottled up in the ports, uh, unable to break through what's essentially a Russian blockade. Meanwhile, we're seeing what the Chinese are describing may be their worst harvest in a very long time. Harvests in India and Pakistan depressed by the early heat to the point where India has ceased grain exports to the rest of the world. And between drought and then spring flooding, trouble getting crops in the field in the States as well. It feels like there could easily be um, another set of lessons that this year is going to teach us before it's out about the fragility of arrangements here on planet Earth. Yes, and um, I mean, Davis Wallace Wells wrote a good uh, column about this also in the New York Times, just, uh, I saw it today. Um, food shortages, well, that that's kind of new. We've, we had been thinking that the problem was somewhat solved by the green revolution and by the um that it was a distribution problem not an actual quantity problem for food supplies but there was always only a six months reserve of grains in stock at any one time so that any big shock the reserves quickly go and then we're into a 
a, a situation that could become desperate. Um, and that too, it's, it's climate inflected, it's the panic of people realizing that the world order has to change fast. And we're not good at changing fast, and we're not in agreement on that. A lot of people will fight like like the devil to uh, stop the necessary changes. So it's a political struggle of immense um, intensity, and and the stakes are really high too. So you, you really you can't avoid it. You you could stick your head in the sand, but but that's getting really hard. <laughs> the sand's blown away, and you're sitting and looking around. One of the assumptions that I think is incorrect that. I think people tend naturally to make is that as things get worse, we'll start making better decisions. Uh, and, and that when emergencies come or we're really pressed to the wall, that's when uh, better human instincts will emerge and we'll uh, do what we need doing. It strikes me that your, your literary project almost from the beginning, from the Mars trilogy, uh, has been about political science more than science science and has been about how people figure out how to govern themselves and the stresses uh, that, that that can create. When you look at the possibilities, what's the right balance of fear and hope looking at a world that gets in tighter straits? What's that gonna do? Oh, it, um, if both are ratcheted up to a high level of intensity, then you get our time. That's what our time feels like. Um, um, huge amounts of terror, dread, and also hope because the solutions are there and we could in fact do it if we were to get our act together. So that combination of feelings, it's as if we're in a giant race. And if we win the race, we dodge a catastrophe of um, um, pretty immense proportions. And if we lose the race, that catastrophe hits. And, and it's not true that in dire emergencies that you make the best response. I mean, there is the kind of immediate human aid, mutual aid in a, in a natural catastrophe. This is like Rebecca Solna at Paradise in Hell. People do tend to help each other out, but this is a temporary fix of just trying to save lives. Um, I was up talking to Gary Snyder, uh, a, a friend and mentor up in his place in the foothills, and his son, Kai Snyder, said to me, um, in disruption ecology, you can see that when change happens really fast, there's not the ability to respond to it adequately because it's an emergency and it crashes things. If if the change is coming so slowly, you just don't pay attention to it or even try to address it at all. So there's a middle pace of change where you can see that it's a coming and also have time to cope with it somehow. And we speculated that we're actually in a good pace of change right now. Not in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians are not worried about climate change, they're worried about surviving the Russians. But in the rest of the world, um, it's not happening so slowly that we can ignore it like we did for the last 30 to 50 years. It's happening at a pace that is smacking us in the face and yet we still have time to respond. So the, the 2020s might be seen as a zone of opportunity for uh, people to court, uh, get the word out, understand the problem, listen to the scientists. Um, and then uh, what I've been focusing on, and this is what I thought you were going to talk to me about in terms of new technologies, is financing, paying ourselves mm -hmm. to do the good things by way of, and I don't, I'm not talking about new instruments, and this is why I wanted to talk to you about it. I'm not talking about cryptocurrencies. I'm talking about fiat currencies. I'm talking about the central banks and the governments of the world doing a kind of Keynesian stimulus where the, it's more carbon quantitative easing than it is any kind of cryptocurrency, um, that governments simply pay their citizens to do green work to get ourselves out of this fix. The U.S. Uh, has before it at the moment the first serious effort at a climate bill that Congress has even considered. And it includes huge sums of money for doing some of the work that we need to do. Um, and it seems to be, I mean, it's run into the buzzsaw that is Joe Manchin and 50 Republican senators backed by the fossil fuel industry. And their argument is, uh, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, or at least the argument that Manchin keeps using to explain why he won't help is uh, fear of inflation. 
it leads one to feel kind of trapped in the world that we're that we're in at the moment, with it hard to make a break to the uh, to what we need to go. Manchin also managed to block the appointment of uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin to the Federal Reserve, who's on the grounds that she was going to do too much about climate. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we didn't want to do any of that because the whole job of the Fed was simply to try and fight inflation. Well, Man- Manchin was wrong about all this, and the but the he's not the crucial thing. We if we'd had one or two more um, Democratic senators, then he would not have had the power that he has. So <clears throat> when you when I talk about a working political majority, we didn't have it. We we lacked it by one vote. Very frustrating. Um, if he was a real Democratic senator, then we would have had an immense bill. Um, uh, starting things off in that kind of Keynesian stimulus. And as to inflation, g- give me a break. It's not money supply, which is, there's trillions of dollars of fictional money out there in the dark pools and in financialization in general. It's um, the, it's not more too much money, it's too little stuff. So in other words, inflation is happening because of resources that are getting more expensive because there isn't enough of it, even including labor power, which thank God for that. But but humans shouldn't be a commodity. Their work shouldn't be a commodity. So this is ugly that that when when workers command higher prices, then the stock market tanks because they aren't taking enough profit out of people. It's an ugly system that we're in. But I'll, I'll revert to this. A working political majority and some great things would have been done led by the Biden administration. So actually thrashing the poor Biden administration for for a situation in Congress that was not of their making is not appropriate. We need to win. In fact, yep. we need to win in November. And we and we very well might. Uh, this these calls of despair that oh we've lost in advance. Let's let's punt history is, you know, overdetermining our brains. We're in a new situation. Nothing is foreordained anymore. Well credit where due Biden yesterday invoked the Defense Production Act to spur the production of heat pumps. Unglamorous but absolutely essential part of the technological suite of things that we need to get done. I was very pleased to see that happening. And perhaps it's a sign that they're just deciding that if they can't get Manchin's vote, it's time to actually just go and do what they can on their own. I think that, um, you know, I think Biden wants to be FDR and he hired a brain trust of young people, uh, younger people who are really good on all issues, including environment. But um, FDR had a gigantic majorities in yeah, Congress yeah. and he, he had to over he had to steamroll the Supreme Court. Um, and that's not easy. And, and that didn't even kind of work. But um, but Biden didn't have that luxury because of mansion. Um, didn't have a majority in Congress, even though it looked like it for a while. So he's having to do what he can. But um, I give them, uh, you've run into many more people in this new administration than I have by the nature of your work. But I have indeed, because of ministry, run into uh, more than I would have otherwise. That's for damn sure. And I am impressed. It's a new generation of thoughtful and energetic people um, in the Democratic Party uh, administration that they're in Washington. And if they could do what they want to do, we would be making substantial progress. It would feel more like California, which feels pretty good, I must tell you. Mm-hmm. The other novelistic event of this uh, important decade so far, one that unfolded like the opening chapters of 10,000 airport thrillers, was the pandemic. Yep. Mysterious disease emerges from the East and swats down giant cities, you know, across the world and so on and so forth. Looking back on it, to the extent that we're past it, (laughs) what did that teach us about where we stand right at the moment with both human nature and governmental arrangements? Good question. And of course, everybody's been thinking about it. So I only toss my thoughts in as one very confused person's uh, uh, observations and nothing new will come from me. But um, I think it accelerated our sense of history happening. There were sentences in Ministry for the Future like the 2030s were zombie years. And that was written in 2019 before the pandemic. There is no way 
2030s are going to be zombie years. And we have been slapped into a sense of, of history happening and of emergency. Some little thing like a virus can suddenly um, bring civilization to its knees and slow things down in, a, in ways that everybody's life changed. And then everybody did change, first because they were scared of dying, and then secondly out of some kind of sense of uh, social solidarity or um, we need to hang together here and not fall into chaos. Now, obviously, that wasn't a universal response, but it was more general than you might have guessed in advance. And it was impressive to see. And the response from the scientific community of saying, uh, let's not worry about attributions or about patents. Let's collaborate and put all of our heads together to solve this one problem. And it was amazing how fast the good vaccines got out of there. And like I got COVID while I was in India, but I had had my second booster uh, and I, I, I felt it like a cold. Uh, symptoms were mild. Uh, um, without those uh, um, vaccines and boosters, maybe I would have died. You never know. But in any case, the speed of the medical response of the scientific community was super impressive. And it's suggestive, too. If we had that sense of urgency for these uh, other problems we're facing, maybe we could also have quick responses that are hugely helpful. And you're sort of seeing that. Battery storage, electricity storage, uh, clean energy in general. Um, all that seems to be accelerating, getting cheaper, getting better, um, getting more normalized and getting paid for, including, I will add, by private capital. Um, there's an immense amount of private capital in this world. And now a lot of it seems to want to be investing uh, for a long return that is a green, a healthy green return. Of course, there's controversy about the ESGs and are people really just greenwashing, but but even if they're trying to greenwash, that shows they're in a different um, structure of feeling where they're worried about their image in this. And for the most part, I see a lot of private capital that wants to really do green investing, which means humans being hired to do good work for knitting up the biosphere. And that's important because even though I'm a government man in terms of public over private, government over business. It is a business world and it doesn't matter what my uh, individual ideology is. We need all hands on deck. And if the world of private capital and these asset managers are saying, well, it's better for the business if we don't let the biosphere crash, this is a good move. This is a good shift. One thing that accelerates this process in ministry for the future is the emergence of a militant and indeed violent a wing of the environmental movement, something that, that hasn't really happened yet, though uh, there are now books like How to Blow Up a Pipeline that are attracting more. Have, have you thought more about that in the years since you wrote Ministry for the Future and what role uh, nonviolence and violence and things may likely play as this works its way out? I have, and uh, I have to say that conversations with you have been hugely influential on me. We talked a lot in Glasgow, and I've been reading your work all along. And so I think it's important to read Malm, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And he makes a distinction that's very important that ministry doesn't make between damaging property and harming humans. So he, uh, he and Joshua Clover, who wrote Riot Strike Riot, Joshua's very good on this. The word violence should be reserved only for hurting other humans. So if you do go down and break a pipeline or a bulldozer, that's not even violence. That's just uh, property destruction or vandalism. In other words, a distinction between sabotage and murder that is not at all clear in ministry for the future. And my, my only excuse is I didn't understand it myself well enough. And also I wanted to mimic the chaos of history if we don't come to grips with this climate problem, there is going to be a lot of violence, which is to say human on human violence. As for sabotage, um, well, I don't know. And I don't want to make a judgment. Um, I myself am a pacifist. And you have convinced me, and along with writers like Erica Chenoweth, who wrote um, Why Civil Resistance Works and other books about civil resistance, that the most effective strategies are the ones that convince onlookers that you are right. And you've spoken about this in connection with Martin Luther King's campaigns, 
that you, um, as a resistor, you put yourself out there and you don't do harm to other humans. You, in, if any harm's going to come, it will come to you by putting your life on the line, which I, I don't recommend that either, but you could glue yourselves to the doors of an asset manager's office or whatever. Um, you know, resistance doesn't have a good rhetoric. And this is where you have experiences in the real world through your career that give what your opinions are on this subject more weight than an academic theorist, um, although Malm has also been an activist, but but more weight than any academic ideas about it is experience on the ground with running campaigns for years. So, uh, you know, if I, if I were to, to, 2019 was for me a much darker time. I thought Trump might win again. I thought we would never act on climate change. And between Trump losing and the pandemic hitting, um, I'm actually in a better mental space about our chances now than I was in 2019. But also talking with you has changed me, and um, and I think it's changed a lot of people, Bill, but um, that, that we do need to demonstrate, to tell our political leaders, don't take fossil fuel money and betray us with your votes, like Manchin. Every citizen of West Virginia could have had a good job in Social Security out of this deal because he could have leveraged it and given his people uh, immense benefits of doing green work. And instead, he's, he's screwed his own West Virginians and, along with the rest of us. Well, we all need to demonstrate in effective ways rather than just um, demonstrative or self-satisfying ways. You'd rather want to make changes in the minds of people who are still somehow undecided or even mildly against you. Can you do persuasive things by action in the world? Well, this is something you know more about than most Americans. One of the things that's very interesting right now is that with, at least for the moment, government action stymied for a while in Washington, there's been a lot of focus on, as there is in Ministry for the Future, on financial systems. And there's this new data from, I don't know whether you saw this, but these remarkable studies from a few weeks ago, just demonstrating the magnitude of what money invested in or money stored in American banks does in terms of carbon. It turns out that companies like Google saw their emissions double overnight once somebody figured out a good way to calculate how much carbon that cash produced as it was leveraged to loan to the fossil fuel industry to build pipelines or frack new fields or things. It turns out that Netflix manages to generate more carbon from its cash than from all the streaming of all the billions of hours of bad TV shows around the world every single day. Amazon produces more carbon from its cash than all the delivery trucks and warehouses that it owns and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. And that the average American, if they have 125 grand saved up and stored in our banking system, is producing more carbon that way than in all the cooking, heating, flying, driving, cooling of an uh, average year. Well, I got to say the numbers took me aback and made me resolve to kind of double down on this work we're doing at places like Third Act, where we organize older people, to really try and hold the financial system to account quickly, because it can move perhaps somewhat more quickly than our heavily dysfunctional political systems. Well, I, I would never want to give up on the political system, and um, they're not agree. They they're not they're only dysfunctional because of gridlock of not having a, a true working majority to get things done. And if we had that, and if there were be um, about two trillion dollars a year being uh, spent by the government on green programs, you'd have uh, full employment, less of a precariat more uh, a sense of security and solidarity and a lot of green work being paid for and it's not that much actually compared to i mean you could you could actually begin to talk about how the u.s military ought to be thrown into this cause as well and their budget is huge etc but in any case it's a it's a fix that could work if we got the political majority but in meantime back to your point private capital and asset managements and banks um, divestment, it's really hard. You can go to your stockbroker or you can go look at your funds and your, your savings account that you mentioned, um, moderate but not inconsiderable if you've been a lucky middle-class American. 
and see that where you have it is indeed going into fossil fuels. And when you say, no, put my money elsewhere, it's very hard for them to do that because the tentacles are everywhere. I mean, Calvert social management funds are not particularly fossil free, et cetera, et cetera. They haven't promised it. The ESGs are falling apart in front of our eyes. On the other hand, the SEC is writing a rather immense document to try to regulate this stuff and, and uh, create real standards. And of course, they're being fought by certain elements in the financial industry. But that means that our government is doing its job and the SEC is doing its job or trying to. So the battle's on, and what's in, the encouragement in this is that so many people are trying, are aware of the problem, are pushing in ways that have never been true until now. Um, we're in a, a, a post-pandemic, I would say 2022 is just um, like two decades away from 2019 in terms of uh, historical change. We've, we've gone through a kind of a earthquake in history, a seismic shock, a tectonic shock, and now we're standing on the other side and it's somewhat wrecked, but it's also somewhat opened up of thinking, all right, what are we going to do with this new situation? Well, one thing that that's really fun is this work we're now doing, organizing people over 60. And it has a kind of novelistic quality to it almost too, the sort of response to the Greta's and the amazing youth organizing. Uh, is grandparents starting to figure out that it's not really okay to just take the biggest problems on earth and leave them for 17-year-olds to solve, but to mm. join in and push. We were doing demonstrations outside banks uh, with young people over the last little while, and uh, you know they were somewhat spryer, so they were usually at the head of the march, but behind them, uh, the one I was at, big cloud of people with hairlines like mine under a banner that said, fossils against fossil fuels. Um, <laughs> and it struck me that that could easily have come out of the pages of Ministry for the Future. Let's switch gears and talk about something um, altogether more beautiful, although I'm afraid we won't leave climate change 100% behind in doing it. But let's talk about the High Sierra for a moment and your remarkable new book on your life up in the range of light, as John Muir called it. First of all, I've always had this theory that everybody on earth has some landscape that they're just completely fitted for and that, that fits like a jigsaw piece in their brain. I know for me, it was when I first encountered the Adirondacks in upstate New York. But clearly for you, uh, it's been over a lifetime, the Sierra. So describe what this place is like to someone who's never had the privilege of getting to hike up in all that high granite. Sure, I'll try. I'll, although let me preface that by just mentioning a beautiful moment for me last year was standing at the start of a peace march in Glasgow during COP26 next to you and having these, yeah, Scottish families with their little kids and their hilarious posters marching by. It was very celebratory, very peaceful. And many and many a person passing by said, oh, there's Bill McKibben and came over and slapped hands. And, and we were standing at the takeoff point and, and we were, uh, Bill was kind of blessing the the launch of this thing and i was there to witness it and i loved it now back to the sierra and bill that was a great moment in my it life really was. it I was i enjoyed that immensely yeah but um the sierras i went to when i was 21 and they're california range so they're mediterranean in climate and they're really near the ocean so they get a a fair dumping of snow every winter um very irregular so we talk about the average you're just really it's an average between a whole bunch of snow and not very much snow and the average doesn't speak to the irregularity very well. And then that snow sits there and it melts off through the summer, fills California's reservoirs and is a big part of our water supply. Meanwhile, the mountains were under ice during the ice ages and their granite, a particularly clean white granite um, for the most part. And so the ice uh, carved and burnished and smoothed and broke this granite in ways that make it uh, supremely human-friendly. You can sleep on soft sand. You can hike on staircase-like um, uh, breaks in the granite. You uh, can occasionally scramble up slopes that are too steep to walk up, but the granite will mostly hold in position. Um, it, it seems to lock in with itself when it's broken to uh, 
uh, to Talos. Uh, and so it's a playground, um, but also it's a wildlife corridor. And so I've experienced it my whole life as just a place to go up and run around like a five-year-old on a jungle gym, but also like I'm in an art museum and I'm enjoying the greatest masterpieces ever done by, by bonsai gardeners or whatnot, landscape art, Andy Goldsworthy, left, right, and center. Uh, and the combination of those two thrills has been my main inspiration. I wouldn't make too many claims for it, um, except for now, as I, you know, in my third act, what I see is that what I was regarding as a kind of great playground for an outdoor kid and quite beautiful is also a home for wildlife that will be part of the whole uh, what can you say? 30 by 30, 50 by 50, half Earth. Um, a saving space for the wild animals to move around on this continent through climate change. And the Sierras are a big part of that, as are many mountain ranges and desert areas. And so as we extend the habitat spaces for other creatures, I can rejoice that my that my kid playground area of very little significance to the world at large is also now an important part of saving the biosphere so it's it's been a it's been a i mean i know we're in an emergency but to see that my favorite range is a part of the solution to the emergency has been a, a pleasure let's go back to the sierra sure let me begin this way saying yes you're right it's your mountain range but let's make a couple of greater claims for it than that in literary terms this is the place where John Muir really invented kind of the grammar and vocabulary of wildness that we still use today in a lot of ways. Um, and, and remarkable in that regard. Do you ever think about that when you're traipsing around up there? Oh, absolutely. Not to mention that almost every other trail sign up there has Muir's name on it and an even a kind of a woodblock carving of his face as an old man. So he's omnipresent up there. And I think about him a lot. I've read all of his work. I reject these accusations against him as being some kind of an ignorant racist that is very, very untrue. And to revert to the positive, he was an abused child. His father was a maniac who beat him a lot. And he, when he got out into nature, it, his uh, his kind of distorted Calvinist uh, dreams of, of Christianity, and you've written about this recently yourself, were transmuted into a kind of transcendence. And he read Emerson, even met Emerson. He read, he read Thoreau more thoroughly than anybody in his time had read Thoreau. Thoreau was not famous like he is now until the 1920s. But Muir read him beginning to end. We know that because his notes are in the complete works of Thoreau beginning to end in the Muir archive. And with all those influences, he went up there and he wrote about it. He realized writing magazine articles and collecting them in the books was a way that he could make enough money to support himself whilst he spent a lot of time just traipsing around the High Sierra. And you can somewhat map where he went by his descriptions, although he didn't have good maps and he didn't have names. So we do some guesswork there. But what a Sierra guy. And he came to it more primed than you can possibly believe by his youthful experiences, hit the Sierras when he was about 30, and it just blew the top of his head off. He never came down. He spent the rest of his life proselytizing for nature. For uh, and, and again, he's being attacked for stupid reasons in that the national parks were not his idea, and he thought everybody should go up and see the wilderness. He did not advocate kicking indigenous people out of their homelands. He, he saw high Sierras that were never permanent residences for anybody because of that snowpack. But he also wanted everybody to go up there. He was trying to preserve things from loggers, sheep herders, and miners who were destroying this, this area for short-term profit, and he wanted it for long-term uh, everybody. So, so Muir's uh, impulses were right. His writing is good. He's a a heroic figure for us. Well, and and then the Sierra becomes, uh, thanks to Muir, and then in his wake, David Brower, the Sierras become the kind of staging ground for the first great environmental nonprofit, in some ways, the kind of prototype of the modern nonprofit of all sorts, the Sierra Club. And that has powerful resonance too. And I mean, that's a the Sierra Club's, a, a, again, a kind of 
force out of ministry for the future. One of the kind of things that fights the good fight year after year. Yes, and I would like to say that Muir allowed himself to be used as a figurehead. He was like the charismatic megafauna, a group of San Francisco intellectuals. And the one to remember is a guy named William Colby, who said, we should have a Sierra Club to protect the top of our watershed. It was actually watershed thinking and biosphere thinking in its 1890s version. Muir said, great idea, go for it. I'll give you my name and, and um, ceremonial presidency. But the work was done by a whole bunch of people. And immediately, William Colby said, we have to have women involved here. And in the 1890s, that was somewhat revolutionary. But he made sure that the high trips to the Sierra always invited and included a lot of women who experienced their Sierra lives as a breakout from you know, domestic, uh, not quite prison, but um, a prison of the mind where they were expected to be demure and obedient. And then they got up in the Sierras and ran wild and they loved it with all their hearts. So the early Sierra Club, along with its other accomplishments, was a kind of early feminist organization, very influential in California culture. And that has to be remembered because uh, Sierra Club, you know, it was white, it was middle class, it has some things to regret, but not enough to make them so apologetic. And the the recent spate of apologies from the Sierra Club brass are unnecessary, uh, unwarranted. The Sierra Club has a lot to be proud of beyond just uh, land um, protection. They were also a social group, and and they made a they made an early feminist move that had big resonance here. You know, I was I've just come back from a few blessed weeks in very remote parts of Alaska, out amongst the bears and the wolves wow. and so on. And it couldn't have been more fun. Wow! But one of the things I have to remind myself when I'm there amidst that incredible abundance is that there's nothing special about Alaska, that all the world looked like this not that long ago. In fact, one of the guys that I was with, wonderful, wonderful writer named Hank Lentfer, said, if you could go anywhere back in history where he said, I would, I, I'd like to be in San Francisco Bay 500 years ago with a bear on every stream, you know, up into the Delta and salmon running everywhere and things. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a good reminder that these places that seem to us like refugia are just the leftover places from what was once a world of almost unimaginable abundance. It's true, and it's a good thought because we could bring it back. There's nothing irremediable about the damage we've done so far. If we can dodge extinctions, we can restore this kind of landscape. And I, I want to, in that context of what you said, uh, there's a story told perhaps by Thoreau uh, meditating that wolves howl to themselves as they see sunrises coming. And they even could use Venus. Uh, They would see Venus and start howling because they knew that meant sunrise. And the Native Americans had a name for the star Sirius that was called Fools the Wolves because the wolves would see Sirius and think it was Venus and start howling and they were wrong about that. (laughs) Fools the Wolves, a great name for that star. So here's the thing. As sunrise went across the American continent, there would be a longitudinal line of wolf howling going from the Arctic right down through Mexico. And so hour by hour, like some kind of a morning alarm clock or cock crowing would be wolves howling in this longitudinal line down the whole continent. And I would love to see that come back. Friend, that may be the perfect image with which to end this talk and a chance to say extraordinary thanks to you for being one of those wolves. (laughs) Uh, howling out there uh, and giving us uh, some warning and also some comfort and solace. And your work is in so many hearts and so many minds now, and we're all the much better for it. Thank you immensely. Well, thank you, Bill. That is a beautiful thought. And I'm thinking that, you know, wolf packs usually have a a, a leader, and you are one of those leaders. And I am uh, proud to know you and happy that this, uh, that over the last, uh, whatever it's been, a decade or so, we've had more and more crossings of the path. And I look forward to more. More to come. More to come. Amen, brother. All right. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson, author of The Ministry for the Future, and author and environmental activist Bill McKibben. This program was recorded on June 7th, 2022.
you can attend a City Arts and Lectures program live in San Francisco. Come out for an evening of music, art, and stories with Patti Smith. A conversation about mind-altering plants with Michael Pollan. Acclaimed novelist Motion Hamid and more. For tickets to those events and others, visit cityarts.net. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein Breyer and Holly Mulder Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Jordan White assists with production and communications. The post-production director is Nina Thorson. The Sydney Goldstein Theatre technical director, Stephen Eckerd. The recording engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sydney Goldstein. City Arts and Lectures programs are supported by Grants for the Arts of the San Francisco Hotel Tax Fund. Additional funding provided by the Mimi and Peter Haas Fund, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and the Friends of City Arts and Lectures. Support for recording and post-production of City Arts and Lectures is provided by Robert Mailer Anderson and Nicola Miner. To attend a live program, see who is coming next, or find out more about our podcast, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net. <laughs>